you've got two options regarding your salvation. Two options. You are either trusting Jesus Christ alone to save you, or you're trusting yourself. That's it. Those those are the only two options. And everyone in this room is living in one of those two realities. You're either trusting in Jesus Christ alone and what he's done for you to provide salvation as a gift from God, or you're trying to earn your salvation. You're trying to be good enough to go to heaven when you die. Everyone in the room is in one of those two camps. And Paul speaks to this in the book of Galatians. And he helps us to understand these two options clearly. And so, as we think about that, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we are back in this wonderful New Testament letter. Paul wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to churches scattered throughout the Roman province of Asia Minor, or Galatia in Asia Minor, in the first century. Galatians chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 6. I ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. I hope that you are having a wonderful Memorial Day weekend thus far. And I encourage you, I implore you to take some time today, tomorrow, uh, even as a family, to just pause and reflect upon what Memorial Day is all about. I hope that you are grateful this morning for those that have served, those that have ultimately given their lives in defense of our freedom. Freedom is a wonderful thing. And we're so grateful for those that have paid everything to defend and protect our Liberty. And you know, Christians ought to lead the way in showing honor because the Bible says we're to give honor to whom honor is due, right? And so this weekend is a time for Christians and everyone uh, to give honor to those who have given everything for us. And so I hope you'll take time uh, to do that. As you've heard the phrase, freedom is not free, is it? Freedom is not free. So grateful for this land in which we live. Galatians chapter 3, look what it says in verse 6. Paul says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But... The law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we say as a faith family gathered together, hallowed be your name. Lord, you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our exaltation. You are God, and there is no other. And you are the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. And you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you through the finished work of Jesus. So I pray, Lord, in these moments, you'd help us to understand that gospel, that good news, in a better way, more complete way, so that we can understand how we need to adjust our lives to your truth. We love you. We praise you. Would you move in our midst by your spirit that our eyes might be opened as we study your word. And Lord, we do not take for granted this morning the the freedom we have, the freedom of religion to gather together in this room and proclaim these wonderful truths together. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom we enjoy in this country. May it ever be so. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You've got two options regarding your salvation. You can trust Jesus alone to save you, or you can try to save yourself. But before you make your decision about which option you're going to take, there are some things you need to know. There are some things that God wants you to know, to help you to have an informed decision. So I want to give you from the text this morning four things that you need to understand before you decide which route you're going to take when it comes to who you're trusting for your salvation. Here's the first thing you need to know. Salvation by faith has always been God's way of salvation. This is not a a new concept. This is a concept that we find throughout all of God's word. And salvation by faith has always been God's way of salvation. Look what it says there in verse 6. Abraham believed God. That's faith. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. As we saw in the first part of Galatians 3, the Christian life from beginning to end is by faith. We are saved by faith. We are sanctified, changed by a continual faith in the work of Christ in our lives. And so the Bible teaches from beginning to end, uh, it's all of faith. And Paul wants the Galatians to understand that it's, it's always been this way. This is not a new concept. He wants them to understand that they are in a legacy of faith. They are following in the footsteps of faith that can be traced back all the way to Abraham. So there are several things about Abraham we see right here in this text. First of all, Abraham was saved by faith. Verse 6 is very clear. It says he believed God. And it was counted or credited to him. That's a accounting term. Credited to him as 
righteousness. When he believed God's promises, he was brought into a right relationship with the Lord. Now this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God intersected Abraham's life. And he said, Abraham, you and your wife Sarah do not have children. You're beyond childbearing years, but I'm going to give you a child. Not only that, through that child, I'm going to give you many descendants and make a great nation. Not only that, Abraham, I'm going to give this nation a land in which to live and dwell and serve me and make me known to other nations. And not only that, through your descendants, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the people groups, all the peoples on the earth. So that's the original promise that God made to Abraham. In Genesis 15, God reiterated that promise. He said, look up in the sky. Can you count the stars? The answer is no. He's saying, your descendants will be like the stars, beyond counting. And it says, when God reiterated that promise of giving him a son who would, would produce a nation, who would produce a Messiah, who would bring blessing to all the people groups on the earth, when he believed in God's redemptive promise, the Bible says it was counted to him, Genesis 15, 6, counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith. That's what the Bible teaches. And Abraham not only was saved by faith, but Abraham was the recipient of a promise about faith. Look what it says there in verse 7. Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. Abraham was the recipient of a promise about faith. He says, It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. One of the first songs we learn if we've grown up in church is the song, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. How can you know Abraham is your father? The Bible says by faith. When you place your faith in God's Redeemer, you are stepping into this legacy of faith that goes all the way back to Abraham. So Abraham was saved by faith, and Abraham got this promise that anyone who places their faith in God's redemptive uh, work and Redeemer would be his sons. They would be a part of that legacy of faith. Which means that anyone, regardless of background, ethnicity, language, socioeconomic status, anyone who places their faith in Christ will receive the blessing that God promised to give all the people through Abraham. Anyone who places their faith in Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise of blessing. Look what it says in verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. And so when God gave Abraham this promise, he was preaching the gospel because this promise would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Faith in who? Jesus. So wait, how do you know this promise of blessing for all the peoples is found in Christ? 
It could be some other sort of blessing, right? Well, look what it says in verse 14 of the same chapter. So that, watch this, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. This promise that God would bless peoples all over this earth comes only through Jesus. This blessing comes only through Christ. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have received the blessing that God promised to give through Abraham's descendants, through the Messiah who came through the Jews to die for our sins. Anyone who places their faith in Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise of blessing. So what are we learning here? We're learning that salvation is by faith. It's that way now, and it's always been that way. Some people are mistaken. They have a cursory understanding of the Bible. They think, well, you know, New Testament and beyond are saved by Jesus. Before Jesus and the Old Testament, they were saved by doing stuff, right? Wrong. The Bible is clear. Abraham and anyone that's ever been saved has been saved by faith. And if you place your faith in Christ, you are stepping into that lineage, that legacy of faith. Now, there's an extended quote there from Tom Schreiner, which I won't read to you this morning, but here's the point that he makes. Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward to God's promise of redemption and the Redeemer that he would send. They were saved by looking forward to the cross. We, on this side of the cross, are saved by looking back at what Christ has done. But everyone that's ever been saved has been been saved by what Jesus Christ has done at Calvary. Everyone. And by placing their faith in his finished work. You know, it's like gravity. The reason you are staying on your seat this morning is gravity. That's a law that God built into the fabric of uh, this planet on which we exist. It's true today. It was true back in the time of Abraham. It's, It's not going to change. And just like gravity, there is a spiritual law, a spiritual reality that anyone who is going to be saved, made right with God, forgiven of their sins, reconciled to holy God, will be saved by faith. It's always been that way. So if you're making your decision, am I going to place my faith in Jesus to save me or am I going to try to save myself? Realize no one's ever, listen to me, no one's ever been saved by their own moral effort. Anyone who's ever been saved has only been saved by faith. There's a second thing you need to know. If you rely on yourself, you better be perfect. If you're going to rely on yourself, you better be perfect. Now look what it says back in Galatians 3, verse 10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, that quote, when he says it is written, is a quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26 and an allusion to Deuteronomy 28, uh, 58. And that phrase, it is written, is a perfect tense verb. Here's what that means. It means that it was written in the past, but it has ongoing implications in the present. So what God said then applies now. 
And what does he quote? He quotes a verse that says, If you don't keep the law perfectly, you're under a curse. So if you're going to try to save yourself, you better be perfect. If you're relying on yourself to earn salvation, there's no room for error. Did you notice here that the standard is perfect and complete obedience to God's law? Look what it says in verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. Everyone say all. Small word, big implication, right? All things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you have not perfectly obeyed God's law, you're under a curse. If you want to be saved by your moral effort, you got to do it all. So let's just take the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. And just, just look at those Ten Commandments and then place your life along beside them and say, um, how am I doing? Have I ever broken one of the Ten Commandments? Ever told a lie? And we could go on and on, right? Got to be perfect. That, that's the standard. And guess what? It's not perfect from this time forward. It's your entire life. You don't get to start right now. Your entire life has to be perfect from birth until now until you die. So how'd you do as a child? Do you ever sin growing up? Anybody ever do anything wrong? Am I the only one in here? It's not like you can start today and say, okay, I'm going to try to be perfect. It's, hey, your entire, laws under the, your entire life is under the microscope. Have you perfectly obeyed all of God's law? Done what he told you to do and not done what he told you not to do. The standard is perfection. Now we understand that no matter how bright you are, how scholarly you are, that no one in this room has scored a 100% on every test. We know that no matter how great of an athlete you are, no one has ever batted a thousand. I mean, the best baseball players hit about Three out of ten times. <laughs> and we call that awesome. We understand that that, that a thousand is, is not going to happen. There, there's no perfect athlete that's able to do that. And we need to understand the same thing morally. No one in this room has scored a 100 on every moral test. No one in this room is batting a thousand when it comes to moral perfection. Because the standard is not, well, I'm better than that person over there. Or I'm better than that person over there. The standard is, have you done everything God's told you to do and not done everything God's told you not to do? That's the perfection. That, that's the standard. So if you're going to try to rely on yourself to make it to heaven, you better be perfect, which leads to the third thing you need to understand. And This won't come to a shock to anybody. But you're not perfect. And neither am I. And that's a problem. That's a problem. Look what it says there in verse 11. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one's perfect. 
For the righteous, this is a quote from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. People are made right with God by faith, not by keeping the law because no one can do it. The law is not by faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. The law is different than, than, than faith. Faith is trusting in what another has done. Moral adherence to the law is trusting in what you have done to save you. And he's saying, if you're going to do that, you've got you to play by the rules. And the rules are, you've got to do it all perfectly. And he says, it is evident. Evident. No one's done that. No one is justified by keeping the law. Simple observation leads to the conclusion that all fall short of perfection. I mean, just, just, just look at your weekend if you want a, some reinforcement that you're imperfect. Amen? Just simple observation shows that you fall short, which is exactly what the Bible says. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, Romans 3.10. No, not one. I like what Timothy George writes, if someone really were to fulfill the entire corpus of Pentateuchal law with its 242 positive commands and 365 prohibitions, then indeed such a person could stand before God at the bar of judgment and demand admittance to heaven on the basis of his or her performance. Yet, where on earth can such a flawless person be found? Not in this room. Not in your family. Not in the person you see in the mirror. No flawless people. That's the problem. Josh Moody says that trying to earn your salvation by your moral effort is like building a ladder to heaven out of a rope of sand. It's a ridiculous enterprise. You're not perfect and that's a problem because, listen, it gets even worse. Not only... Are we imperfect? Not only we disobeyed God, the penalty for disobedience against a holy God is a curse. Look what it says in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you are not perfect, the Bible says you're under a curse. And what does it mean to be under a curse? Well, to be cursed means to be cut off from God, to be separate from Him, to, to, to be cast out of His presence. Habakkuk 1 says that God is so pure, His eyes can't even look upon evil. So if you have disobeyed Him, if you are imperfect, you're under a curse, which means you cannot be in His presence. You're separated from God. And if you die in that condition, you'll be separated from God forever, forever separated from God the idea of cursing means to be cut off. Paul understood this idea. Look what he says over in Romans chapter 9. Let me, let me show you this striking verse. Romans chapter 9 verse 1. Romans chapter 9 verse 1. Look what Paul writes. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish 
that I myself were accursed, there's that word, and cut off, there's the idea, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You know what Paul's saying there? This is extraordinary. He's saying, if I could take a curse and be separated from God so that my kinsmen, the other Jews, could be saved, I would do that. I would do that. If I could be cut off so they could be reconciled, I would take the curse. That's what he's saying. But notice here his understanding of the curse. It means to be cut off, to be separated from. Not only that, to be cursed means that his wrath abides on you. See this over in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. We see the idea of cursing juxtaposed with blessing there for disobedience and uh, in light of obedience. He's saying, if you obey my commands, there'll be blessing. If you disobey, there'll be cursing. And when you see that context, it means there'll be punishment. My wrath, my anger will be poured out upon you. To be cursed means that his wrath abides on you. And this is not just Deuteronomy. John 3, the famous John 3.16. You remember back in the day when... The field goal kicker would kick the extra point on a, after a touchdown. You see the guy in the stands with the John 3.16 sign, right? Great verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should be leaving him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then it goes on to say in chapter 3, if you have not believed in Christ, you are under condemnation right now under God's wrath. And if you die like that, you spend eternity under God's wrath. The Bible speaks of an eternal lake of fire where you are forever separated from God. The Gospels call this a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm never dies. Eternal conscious torment as God's wrath is poured out upon you forever. And you are forever separated from God in that awful place called hell. The Bible speaks clearly of this. You may not hear this in a sermon on TV. But that's what it means to be cursed. Abiding under God's wrath and one day experiencing God's wrath forever. This is a terrifying prospect. We recently sent a team to Las Vegas to do some mission work, mostly students. and um, They had a chance to take a trip to the Hoover Dam. How many have been to the Hoover Dam? Have you been to the Hoover Dam? This huge, huge structure. Imagine that you are standing at the base of the Hoover Dam. Millions and millions of, of gallons of water on the other side, pushing against that wall with great force and power. Only thing holding back that deluge of water is that huge wall. And then you look and, and you hear something, you notice that the wall sprung a leak and water starting to come out over to your right. And, and then you look over to your left and there's some more water coming out. You look above you and water starting to come through the wall and you know that the dam has been compromised. 
And you know that the deluge is coming. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? To be standing at the foot of that dam and it's about to burst? That's exactly what it's like spiritually to be under a curse. You are just a heartbeat away from eternal wrath and punishment if you do not know Christ. And you do not know when that dam will burst and you step into eternity and experience the fullness and ferocity and fury of God's wrath against your sin. That's a terrifying prospect. The Bible teaches this. He says if, if, if you disobey, if you fall short of perfection, you're under a curse. To be cursed is like being exiled away from everyone and everything while awaiting execution. That's what this curse is like. But there's one more thing you need to know. Before you make your decision, am I going to trust Christ alone or am I going to trust myself? And the last point is some really good news. Jesus took your curse for you. So stop trusting yourself and turn to him. You don't have to live in fear that you will go to hell, that you are under the abiding wrath of God. Why? Jesus loves you and took your curse for you so you can be saved. Look what it says back in Galatians 3, verse 13. Powerful, powerful verse. Christ redeemed us. He set us free from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus took your curse for you. So you could be saved and not have to live under the fear of that curse. The wrath of God. But here's what you need to understand. Jesus had to live perfectly so that he could take your curse. Do you remember Timothy George's question? Where on earth can such a flawless person be found? The answer is... There was a flawless person one time on this earth, and his name is Jesus. The Bible says that he left the splendor and glory of heaven and took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was born of Mary, and he lived a perfect life. Listen to me. He batted a thousand. He scored a hundred on every test. He never sinned. Never thought a wrong thought, never said a wrong word, never performed a wrong deed. He perfectly obeyed God's law. Think about that. Ten commandments, perfect. He fulfilled the law of God. Now here's why that's important. If Jesus had have sinned, if he had sinned in his life on this earth, he would have had to deal with his own curse. And he could not deal with ours. But because he is the spotless, sinless lamb of God, now he can deal with our curse. Amen? It's good news. He had to live a perfect life to deal with your curse and my curse. Not only that, Jesus died a shameful death so that he could take your curse. Look in verse 13. 
He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the cross. For it is written, curses everyone who's hanged upon a tree. Deuteronomy says that there's, 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 there's shame in hanging on a tree. And Jesus hanging on that tree called Calvary was a, a picture of him taking God's curse for us. He died a shameful death at Calvary so that he could take your curse. God's curse means to be cut off or separated. Jesus was cut off for us. When he was hanging upon the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's curse is punishment. Jesus took our punishment for us. God's curse is his wrath. Jesus took God's wrath for us. God's curse is eternal hell for those who die separated uh, from God. And Jesus took our hell for us. Why would Jesus take that curse? Why would he become a curse for us? Listen to me. Because he loves you. Think about the love that would cause him to go to that cross and take all of your sin and shame and take all of God's curse and wrath for you. It is amazing love. So, when you or if anyone places their faith in him, the curse they're living under for disobedience to God's law is removed and they receive the promised blessing of salvation. Look in verse 14. I love this. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. Remember God said, Abraham, through your descendants, all the peoples will be blessed. How do you receive that blessing? In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In other words, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, you get all the spiritual blessings God has for you. And can I just tell you a few of them? Forgiveness. Anyone here glad about forgiveness this morning? Uh, Adoption. uh, Reconciliation. Redemption. He says here, you get the promised Holy Spirit. God comes to live on the inside of you to change your life, to change the trajectory of your life. Anybody grateful for changed lives this morning? We could go on and on with the blessings of salvation. But listen, they're found in Christ. Only in Christ. Why? Because he took your curse for you. You know, when I was saved at nine years of age, I could not have given you a theological treatise on the curse and Jesus becoming a curse for me. But I remember very clearly when I was nine years of age, I remember my pastor opening his Bible and having me read Romans 6.23. I remember reading, the wages of sin is death. And I remember at that point knowing I was a sinner in need of a Savior. In my nine-year-old mind and heart, I understood I could not save myself. I needed a rescuer. I needed a savior. I was in effect saying when I called on the name of Jesus, I can't save myself. I'm not perfect. So I'm trusting Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. If you're saved today, that's the decision you made. 
You came to a point where you said, I can't save myself. I need Jesus. And so Jesus took your curse for you. Stop trusting yourself and turn to him. Listen to me. Why would you live under a curse? Separated from God. Living under his impending wrath. If you can be rescued. If Jesus took that curse for you, why would you insist on living under it? Why would you try to save yourself when you can't do it? Lay that down and turn to Christ. He's the only way to be saved. That's the point Paul's making here in Galatians. You want to try to save yourself by adherence to the law? You better be perfect. But if you're not, I got some good news for you. Jesus became a curse for you. And so here's the point of this sermon. And again, this sums up everyone in this room. You've either received God's blessing of salvation or you're living under God's curse, period. There's no third option when it comes to salvation. You've either received God's blessing of salvation through Christ or you're living under God's curse. And you don't have to because God loves you and will save you. Or let me say it like this. You're either confident in yourself or you're clinging to the cross. Which is it? Are you confident in your ability to save yourself or have you already blown it? Or are you clinging to the cross knowing that Jesus alone saves.